0: Five seconds left, and he shoots. He scores! I can't believe it. This is a moment for the history books. Secure the dub you've been craving with big, bold flavors from Firehouse Subs, like our iconic hook-and-ladder sub with smoked turkey breast, Virginia honey ham, and Monterey Jack. Order now and score $2 off any sub purchase in the Firehouse Subs app when you enter promo code HOOPS. Limited-time offer only on the Firehouse
1: Subs app. Tap the banner now to download the Firehouse Subs app.
0: Hey everyone, this is Chris from Tigers SRD. I just wanted to give you a quick uh, kind of verbal timestamp of the episode you're listening to. We spent about an hour talking to Craig Calcaterra from Hardball Talk last Tuesday, the 14th, and about the first 45 minutes of the show are that. And Craig was, was really generous with his time. And then Roger and I discuss the 2008 movie Sugar for about the next 15 minutes till about the hour point. And then the last half an hour or so, we're talking about the the building and the 1986 season for the New York Mets, which was uh, I don't know pretty fun. So I hope you enjoy that. And uh, thanks.
1: What's up, Craig? Welcome to another episode of Tigers SRD on the Tiger Minor League Report Network, and of course you can find us on Demand at SportsRadioDetroit.com. I'm Roger Castillo alongside Miss Chris Brown. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Media, Stitcher, and Google Play, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tigers ML Report and the new Facebook page Tigers Minor League Report, and of course follow us on our individual pages: rogcast 81 and ChrisBrown0914. So tonight we have a very special guest with us, a guy, a, a gentleman who before the show talking some local stories but that's no stories for another day and he did a really cool blog but he does a a lot of great baseball talk you can find him on mcc sports hardball talk craig calcaterra
2: joins us how you doing craig i am doing great roger thanks for having me on and uh, hello chris Hey,
0: Chris. Hey, uh, you know you're a very prolific, uh, gifted writer here, and I'm sure you've touched on this topic a number of times in your writing. But we always ask our guests this anyway, so uh, just was kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about your earliest baseball memory.
2: Yeah. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on, and you are far too kind. I'm, I'm prolific. It just means I don't have an editor, uh, so I just write whatever the hell I want. But um, <laughs> no, it's funny. I, so I'm I am uh, 46 years old. I'm I'm older for internet baseball people, and. Uh, I did not come from a family that was really into sports. My, you know, I don't have that story of my dad teaching me baseball or throwing a ball with me. You know, my dad was like a nerdy government employee. He wasn't into that kind of stuff. And I grew up in Flint and uh, lived, I was born in Flint. I lived there until I was about 11 years old. And when I was a very little kid in Flint, uh, I had an uncle lived in Detroit who uh, for years and years had sold cars and boats and things in Detroit and he knew people. And so he got tickets to Tigers games going back to the forties. And, uh, My great uncle, Harry, he took me to Tigers games when I was very little and he took my family would go with us and everything. And I was told that the first game I ever went to was in 1978 at Tiger Stadium. I have no memory of that. I was like not even quite five years old then. But I have a ticket stub somewhere in my house of that game. The first one I remember, though, was from 1979. And I can even tell you the date. The date was June 17th, 1979. And it was a day game. It was uh, Tigers against California Angels, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and for whatever reason, in that one year, it had formed in my brain enough to, to hold on to memories. Alan Trammell hit a home run. My, my first real baseball memory was a very young Alan Trammell hitting a home run against the California Angels in 1979. And uh, because of that, Alan Trammell became my favorite player because, you know, when you're not quite six years old, you think that the guy who hits the home run is going to be the best player ever. And so I decided Alan Trammell was my favorite player. Hey, hindsight, pretty good choice, you know, Hall of Famer now. But uh, yeah, that was my first baseball memory. And from there, I went on to... Uh, You know, listening to games on WJR, going to sleep at night and watching games on WDIV and uh, baseball just got into me that way by happenstance.
1: And Chris and I were talking about this before the show about how both him and I grew up a little differently in the sense that I didn't get into listening to games until, until probably junior high towards high school. But it was always WDIV, George Cal, LK line. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't even back then pass was a pass was a thing. And when games started going more towards pass and local television and talked about this in, in your blog piece, too, about the scarcity to a certain degree of games being on television. <laughs> yeah. It was it's insane.
2: Oh, it was it was crazy. I. I, I vaguely remember this being a thing when I was a kid, right? I'd watch games on Channel 4, but I would listen to way more on the radio because, you know, one, they might not be on Channel 4 or your mom has dibs on the TV and it's the 80s and you don't have, you know, DVR or anything and it just doesn't work that way. So I'm watching this game and we'll talk about it a little bit, but this game from 84 and, uh, you know, this is a like a, a Tuesday game. And George Kell says, well, the next game on WDIV will be this coming Sunday. And then the next game after that is the following Sunday, April 22nd. And so what it ended up being was, you know, there would be three games in a two-week period, televised, period. That's it. There's no ESPN doing games. They didn't even have baseball rights yet. There's, there's no cable doing games. You have Channel 4 games, and you'll get three games in two weeks, like it or not. And uh, And I remember not long after that, in the mid-'80s, I moved to West Virginia the local option there was you can get Cincinnati Reds games, but it would again be like 50 games a year max that was the tv deal like the local tv unless you were in new york or la or something local tv for baseball in the early to mid 80s was like 44 50 games and uh you know not to get too far ahead of myself but the reason i ended up switching from being a tigers to a braves fan was because at the time wtbs was showing 144 braves games a year which was insane people thought it was crazy they thought they were losing money it was how could you possibly show that many games on tv who will ever buy a ticket to a game and how different it is now, and we can literally see every single game if we want to.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, man. I, you know, I we didn't have cable until I was eleven or twelve, and so I, I would occasionally go over. I had some friends in my neighborhood whose who, their dad was uh, the sports information director at Eastern Michigan University, so they were like a mm-hmm. huge sports family. And I'd go over there, and they had ESPN. And I'm like, "What is this? <laughs> hey, what night, is this there'd sorcery?" Be, like, a, there'd be like there'd be an A's game on at at like ten o'clock. I'm like, "What?" How I used to. <laughs> Yeah, and, and even when we got cable, there were you know like thirty channels, and I would watch headline news uh-huh. <laughs> to catch baseball highlights.
2: Yeah, uh, on the twenties because the sports would yeah. come on at twenty and fifty it was on like, headline Yeah, right. Yeah, he I'm right, and here's the sports highlights, and you get two minutes of sports.
0: Yeah, so it's it's one of those things, like, I don't know, it's, it seems how quickly we forget how starved of this stuff we were not that long <laughs> well, ago.
2: What I'm trying to figure out is how the economics of it work, because George Kell is sitting there saying, uh, okay, we'll be at Fenway Park next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, you know, we'll be in, you know, Baltimore or something. And I'm like, so this entire TV crew, and even in the 80s, it had to be a pretty big operation because you've got the two broadcasters and the sound guys and the producer and the guys in the truck and whatever. And they're hauling ass all the way up to boston for one game a week and a half from now how does that even work how is the economics of sports working on tv that you know you can broadcast two or three games in a two-week period but you still have to travel i don't get it i didn't even think about that that, that aspect too but yeah
1: right one game on even like a sunday game where it's by then it's either the team it's either going to be the rubber match or mm-hmm. it could be the end of a three game sweep. So, but I mean. Oh, the best
2: part. This is the best part. I, I looked it up when I was watching this game from '84, that April 15th game in Fenway Park that Kel was promoing. It got rained out. They played one game that whole series. They played the Friday game and Saturday and Sunday both got rained out. And so there wasn't even a broadcast then. So, in reality, people had two games in like a two week. Yeah, no, I remember
0: sitting down, like, you know, looking forward to Saturdays or Sundays, catching a game on TV. And that, that, you know, your blog post brought back a lot of memories. You know, I I wasn't quite. Lucid in '84, but it was uh, things hadn't changed all that much in like '87, '88, '89. Yeah, it was the same it was deal. Basically, <laughs> same same uh, graphics, same tiger with the uh, you know the the bat. Yeah, the, the well, the, yeah,
2: that cartoon tiger biting the bat. I could only find the video yeah. clip from 1990. It's the same one, you know, or the yeah. one with he's got like the the water bottle on his head or the ice pack in his head after a loss. You know, he's going. Meow.
1: There was that was this is the thing about t- Detroit television too, and there's something that you mentioned the regionality of it all too with the the Little Caesars. Commercials and of course the, the 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 Saturday Night Show, which, by the way, was something that we watched at our house because. Uh, the Saturday Night Music Machine show, Chris, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it was something popular at the Brown House, but that, yeah, probably. Uh, um, that I remember Danny Trejo, or, uh, Terrio, which was, I think, the disco yeah. show a couple of years Yeah, that was something. Dance, Dance Fever. Dance right? Fever, you, yeah, Dance, Dance Fever. It, like, that's what Saturday Night Music Machine was, was da- the, uh, another variation of Dance Fever. And those two shows, I don't remember as a I don't know why I remember vividly. But with the Saturday Music Machine, that and there was a—I don't know if you remember this, Craig at all. Chris, I know you do. The new dance show on W or uh, Channel sixty-two. Do you guys ever remember seeing that uh- show? No, oh, I don't remember that one. Oh, that was so. It was, it was this really bad stage. I'll have to, I'll have to send you the clip. But it's a, a a bad stage, and there's people like it's like Soul Train but Detroit style, and the most <laughs> uncoordinated or coordinated people you will ever see dance. And the station's right <laughs> off of Jefferson, not too far from downtown. And it was just like this uh, a gentleman that looked like exactly it was just Soul Train. But Detroit version, Detroit always, and I think you did a really good job of Highland that had its own spin. It, it, it could be said possibly everywhere, depending on how well you, you travel in this world. But I, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of things that are really unique when it comes to advertising oh. and programming here.
2: I, I was a Channel 50 kid. I was a WKBV mm-hmm. kid. And that's where I would watch all my cartoons on Channel 50 you know you'd see the cartoons you'd see the 3 Stooges reruns all that kind of stuff and i don't even know if that's even around anymore but you know that was that was it's probably like a you know a, a fox Affiliate or something, but it was independent TV then, and some of the stuff was random, and they would have, like, you know, the the Saturday afternoon creature feature, which would just be Mm -hmm. some local dude who might be the sound engineer during the week on the local news, but on Saturday, they're like, okay, Fred, we'll let you, you know, host the (laughs) horror movie show or something. It was, you know, it's like Weird Al's UHF, but come to life. That That was TV when I was growing up.
1: Yeah, Channel 20 was the Saturday night, that was, or Saturday afternoon, The they had the, the use of Led Zeppelin, I found it later, the uh, Days to Confuse part, the whole chorus breakdown, that's what they used for their theme, they would play at oh. 10 on Channel 20, and it was... Uh, oh, I remember it.
2: Channel 20, too, yeah. yeah, that was a big deal. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's, it was so random, but, you know, watching the show, watching this, uh, this broadcast from 84, and just, you know... All the Ali Fredder and Highland Appliance commercials, and all the you know Art Van stuff. Well, Art Van now rest in pieces of a few months ago because I guess they're going out of business. But you know all these weird things. And I, what really struck me and hit me on the side of the head like a brick. I mean, it has now been. Thirty, you know, five years since I lived in Michigan, and when I moved away when I was a kid, and uh, I still knew all the words to the Detroit Institute of Art commercial for uh, "You Got to Have Art." They took the the song from "Damn Yankees," "You Got to Have Heart," and they changed it to "You Got to Have Art," and they just did stuff walking around the DIA. You know, I I'm like, oh, I remember all of that. This is all great, and then you know, it, it just and then they welcome to your city, take a look at this your Detroit song. Oh my God, I, I like. All that stuff just flooded back into my head while watching this game. I felt like the most tearful thing that would ever happen was seeing Dan Petrie pitch again but no it were the commercials it was totally the commercials
1: yeah the uh uh, one of the things you point out too that I I liked that as I grew up in this area too was Coleman Young and and the
2: battle of between him and and, and Governor
1: Blanchard because you're right those two did not like each other at all and then for him I got it
2: wrong though I called Blanchard a Republican in the thing because in my brain I thought he was but then someone pointed out to me that he was not and uh, which makes sense because there was no Republican that was going to get Elected in the mid 80s and statewide in Michigan after Milliken went away. But um, yeah, but still Blanchard and, and Young, like the disdain between the two of them. And, you know, Coleman Young was waiting under the stands to throw the this first month. pitch. He's like, I'm going to make him cool as heels. He's waiting for me. That's that's some style right there. I'll give him style points. <laughs>
0: Yeah, man, that's, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I have the same thing where, like, I, I assume it's just because we had five channels and they probably played these things all the time. But, like, I, I still remember a Toledo Zoo commercial. Oh, yeah. Like, like uh, just like, my lines, my lines, I can't remember my lines. It just stuck in there. And if I saw it again, I'd be like, oh, and it take me back uh, 35 years. But
2: yeah, yeah, I totally remember that one.
0: Crazy. You know, but uh, baseball goes on. I did, uh, like like I said, I, I really enjoyed that piece. Uh, just, uh, you know, it was, it was a fun breakdown of, of a game. And that's well, you it's know, it's funny
2: of- what I wanted to do, you know, since we're obviously in this world where sports aren't happening now, I, I give credit to MLB Network and ESPN and and everybody who has any sort of, you know, video archive. They're trying to show stuff, you know, today, for example, I mean, Greg Maddox after Alan Trammell, Greg Maddox then became my next favorite player. And today, MLB, as we're recording, MLB Network was basically made it Greg Maddox Day because April 14th is his birthday and they showed a bunch of games. And that's great. But what they're doing is they're saying, all right, at 10 o'clock, we're going to show the time that he two hit the Cubs. And at one o'clock, we're going to show game two against uh, the Yankees in the 96 series when he, you know, threw a a seven hit shutout. And then we're going to show his, you know, I'm like, okay, great. I I know what happened in those games, because those are the most famous games you can find. And I remember them. Or if I don't remember them, you're telling me now before it even comes on what happened. And that's fine. But the beauty of baseball is the game comes on TV and you don't know what's happening. And that's what I enjoy about a game. I don't know what's going to happen next. And the closest we can get to replicating real baseball is watching games that we don't know what's going to happen. And that's why I ended up turning this one on. Um, Granted, a home opener is, can be a memorable game, but uh, I wanted to find a game from the eighties that, you know, I didn't know immediately off the top of my head, what happened. And so I searched, you know, mid-80s Tigers games, WDIV, and the first one I found was the Jack Morris no-hitter against the White Sox. Okay, like, okay, I'm not going to watch that. I know what happens. He's going to no-hit the White Sox. But this was the second one I found. Home opener against the Rangers, 1984. I can guess that they probably won because they started out 35-5 and that year. They won almost every game they played. But I had no idea what happened that game. I didn't know who was pitching. I didn't know what the score was without looking ahead of time. So that's why I watched it. That's why I did this one, because it was going to give me the best chance to do two things. Watch a baseball game to where I didn't know what was going to happen, but also you know revel in a bunch of nostalgia from when I was ten years old.
1: Yeah, and there's, I mean, what I like about YouTube is if I wanted to watch, and I've done this before. There is a Tigers Blue Jays game from 1977, and it's about a month or two, I believe, right after Whitaker or Trammell. I I think both of them made their debut, and this is when Toronto is in their starting up their expansion years. But Mm. you see the likes of Pat Underwood, who was a highly picked Tiger. To me, that's that's a lot more interesting. In a sense, for, and this is when, I think it was, yeah, Ralph Hollick was still the. the was, yeah. Yeah, he was, still yeah, the manager. was definitely the man guy. Yeah, and to see him, to me, that's, that's unique because it was something like, oh, well, this was the guy who really, I mean, this is a guy who built the Yankees in the 60s, did a fantastic job as executive then the manager then he was the guy who was kind of carrying the torch over for Jim Campbell in Detroit and that to me I don't know that was kind of a for a baseball geek like myself so it's a huge yeah, bridge yeah. right
2: it's 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 really big because yeah like you mentioned you know how was Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra's manager after Casey Stengel went away he like basically took Casey Stengel's job and that that feels like a thousand years ago but there's this guy that at least in my lifetime and even in my memory was the manager of the Tigers, because, you know, Les Moss took over in 79 had half a season or whatever. But as late as 1978, when I was starting to, like, fade into knowing about baseball, Ralph Houck was the manager. And there's this huge bridge when you find these old guys. But then you realize that someone like a Dave Rosemont might have showed up in that game who, you know, was kind of modern. He played into the 80s. Just seeing that kind of passage of time is a huge thing.
1: And, and Chris, I know Chris tends to we talk about nostalgia. And nostalgia is always a thing now, at least recently, that... Mm-hmm used more marketing to bring back the those things of the past. But in this case, with all we have right now currently, and getting back to your piece for a quick second, I felt like when I was reading that in terms of Larry, Larry Parrish, because you know you end up seeing him being a Tiger figure <laughs> later on in the 90s during the, the era that Chris and I watched, unfortunately, a lot of bad Tigers baseball. But some of these Rangers in the early 80s, I crack myself up because I always think of Charlie Huff. I always think of Toby Hara as every baseball card i ever gotten as a kid had these same Rangers in this lineup. It seems like every time I had, like, I had <laughs> three or four Buddy Bells. I know I had a Gary Ward before he joined the Tigers, and I think it was 88, 89 he joined the Tigers. Oh, and, yeah? Yeah, and it was just, like, these same cards I saw. And then, yeah, you're, Ned Yost, and I was like, is that the Ned Yost? And...
2: there were so many bad guys on that rangers team and it was it was a 92 loss rangers team and as the game begins they you know george kell announces their lineup so i pause and i go to baseball reference and i want to look at the 84 rangers and i want to see okay were these guys good what was going on and like i know buddy bell and i know some of these other dudes but superficially you start to see okay this guy's pretty good that guy had a decent year okay this guy's fine and i'm starting to think how did this team lose 92 games and then you know they get to the bottom. Of the lineup, and they were just like giant sucking black holes, at, you know, up the middle. And then a catcher, especially when Sunberg was gone, you know, Ned Yost was the backup catcher, but you know they were terrible there. And it was the one year that the Rangers actually had good pitching. Like Charlie Huff had a good year. Frank Tanana, who would later become a Tiger, obviously he had a good year there. That was when he was figuring out how to pitch without his super fastball that he had back with the Angels. And then the Tigers benefited from that in the late '80s. But it was a good pitching Rangers team for once. Except for the one guy who we now think of as maybe the most famous pitcher on that team, Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart started this game that I watched. Dave Stewart, who was like a four-time 20-game winner, who was the ace for the powerful Bash Brother Oakland A's. Dave Stewart takes the mound, and then I realized, wait, he wasn't Dave Stewart yet. It's so fascinating to see these guys when you know what's going to happen later. And Dave Stewart was like a big toolsy project. The Dodgers just gave up on him. They cut bait on him the year before in 1983 and traded him to the Rangers for Rick Honeycutt who later would become Stewart's teammate with the A's. But uh, he was a reliever for the Dodgers who didn't pan out. The, the Rangers turned him into a starter. He could throw 95 miles per hour, which George Kell makes a big note of. This guy throws hard. He throws nine to five miles an hour. And, you know, 95 now would be like, eh, it's marginal. It's OK. It's, it's not bad. But in 1984, 95 was otherworldly. And I watched this game start and Dave Stewart takes the hill. And I think, oh, this is Dave Stewart. And he's so much bigger and he's so much stronger. And he is so much more well-built than every player on that field. It's like he looks like a modern player next to all these dudes that could have been playing in the 50s. And he starts the game and then you realize he has no idea where the ball is going. And I'm like, oh, well, that physique wasn't yet quite under control.
1: Yeah. And and what I find interesting, too, about that is that him and Mike Moore or- not Mike Moore, I'm sorry, but uh, Bob Welch, which is an – oh, yeah. Yeah, both those guys were – were the Dodgers used to do, correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, was – they take their pitchers who were going to be starters and uh, yeah. yeah, and then put they, them in the bullpen? or bullpen they, they
2: did what like the Twins would later do with yeah. like Johan Santana and stuff like that is if they thought a guy was going to be a good starter one day, they would start him off as a swingman or a bullpen guy. That was sort of like the Dodgers system. And so Welch was the best example because he made himself famous in the 77 or 78 World Series – as, you know, a big relief ace kind of guy. And, of course, later he became a 27-game winner starter. But Tommy Lasorda and Al Campanas and all those guys with the Dodgers thought that this is what you do is you ease these guys in. And, um, yeah, uh, Stewart was going to be the next one, right? Big, strong, toolsy guy that could throw really hard. Uh, He was going to be the next dude. But they just somehow lost it in the early 80s, early to mid-80s. They just had a few guys just completely miss. And then they uh, somehow got off that train smartly. And then, you know, Oral Hershiser shows up. They're like, oh, well, we're going to make this guy a starter. And they figured it out it again.
1: Yeah, the same bullpen, Chris. Look at this bullpen 81. Welch was, well, he was the fourth mm-hmm. guy in the fourth fan rotation. But you have Steve Howe in the height of his power. You have David Stewart and Rick Suffcliffe. So Suffcliffe, it's like, oh, yeah. you know what? Like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put him in, in there, too.
0: And this is before yeah. his George season. George Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: A, 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 future, a, a future Cy Young Award winner. We're just going to have him be kind of a swing man, figure it out, right? Yeah.
0: No, that, that, that kind of brings me back to another thing where, you know, I, I started really becoming understanding baseball in like 87 or so. And I started collecting my own baseball cards. And, and you know, a couple of years later, Dave Stewart, to me, he was just a guy, the guy in the A's. I don't even think I processed like age back then other than like super old guys. And, and so I'd go through my brother. My brother's six years older than me. And he had been collecting baseball cards for a lot longer. So I'd go through his cards and be like, whoa, look at this. These guys have been around forever. He was on that team? It doesn't
2: make yeah, sense. you don't realize when they had a life before yeah. they popped into your head. Yeah, there there were so. tigers like that too. There were, you know. um uh, oh, I'm trying. Richie Hebner is a great example. Richie Hebner was a tiger, a guy I always think of as a tiger because Richie Hebner played for the Tigers. But Richie Hebner had a whole life before, into the early '70s, late '60s even, I think, with like the Pirates and stuff. But you know, that's who he was. Larry Herndon. Larry Herndon was a giant. Mm-hmm. Daryl Evans. My God, Daryl Evans played years before he was with the Tigers. In fact, this game that I saw was the, the in '84. That was his first year with the Tigers. It was his first home game as a Tiger. Literally 11 years before, He was a four. 40- home run man for the Braves Daryl Evans was not a young man when he became a Tiger but when you're a kid And they show up on your team or they show up in your pack of baseball cards. That's where you immediately snapshot them. And so seeing some of these dudes, you know, you know, Gary Ward even, you know, Gary Ward's not a huge name. But, you know, if you're a Minnesota Twins kid, you know who Gary Ward is. He was a big guy when your dad was a Twins fan in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. But Gary Ward showing up on the Rangers seemed weird because probably the first Gary Ward card I ever had was like a 1981 Topps White Sox, Gary or Twins, Gary Ward so yeah it's funny how that works especially I wonder what kids who are a little younger than me guys who are a little younger than me you know think about that because you know the free agency era started in like 76 but it didn't really get into full swing until the late 70s early 80s so I still have a memory of guys would be with the same team for 15 years and then they might have some token free agency period with someone new Tom Seaver might show up on the White Sox for example but if you're you know 30 right now do you have that same sort of sense of this guy plays for the team? I don't know. Maybe you do.
1: Well, I'm thirty I'm thirty eight and I, I will say this. I have the I remember Tom Glavin talking about taking that deal with the Mets because it was the right thing to do when the Union when mm-hmm. when, you, when you when you think of Donald Fuhrer, you think of one of the most powerful union men on the face of the planet, and that's who I think of. I think when I think of free agency and I think of the ninety four season, the strike shortened season, or the just in terms of where players kind of the whole free agency, I think of how strong the union is compared to now, which is under strange enough, connected dots the former tiger tony clark it's just mm-hmm. it's, it's like it's a bizarre world thing where the, the the players now don't have that kind of swagger like you're talking like chris was mentioned earlier general Starberry having signed that big deal the big contract <laughs> with the dodgers and he was like oh he's getting all this money and, it, and now you look at it in hindsight you're like oh, i mean that's the minimum now so it's like it's just almost and you know, Daryl evans Daryl evans
2: 1984 contract i looked it up three point one million dollars uh, yeah, it was two point two five or two point oh. two two five million dollars for a three year deal. That was, and Daryl Evans was like the most highly sought after free agent after the eighty three season because he had a huge eighty three season with the Giants, and it was a three year like two point three million dollar deal.
0: You know, I remember Daryl Evans being good for the Tigers. but I don't think I ever really dug into his numbers before. First of all, he started in nineteen sixty nine, which is insane. Yes, yeah. but yeah, it was a seventy three.
2: The seventy-three Braves, runs. yeah, the seventy-three Braves was a it was a huge team. Him, Davey Johnson, the former, Met, the future Mets manager, and I think it was Hank Aaron. They were three teammates that each had forty home runs, and uh, and and, yes. and then he hit
0: forty home runs again in eighty-five. Which maybe a, this is like a well-known stat that I don't know about, but that's got to be like the longest period of time between forty home run seasons. That was. I mean, awesome. Aaron Long might
2: years. have beaten him. Aaron, Aaron did it in seventy-three. And he probably did it in the fifties at some point, but yeah, it's the same kind of deal. Where Evans had a long career and he was really durable, and you know he was still big in '87 in that run against the Blue Jays that year. He had a big, he actually had a better year in '85 and in '87 than he did in '84 with a championship team, and he just lasted a long time. And I got to meet Evans uh, about two years ago, three years ago. He uh, he shows up if you go to spring training in Arizona. He he's one of those guys. There's this circuit of of veterans who sign autographs at spring training games uh in arizona i think they probably do it in florida too but there'll be a little table just like on the concourse next to the beer stand and you can just walk up and you can go, you know, get Daryl Evans' autograph or Blue Moon Odom's autograph or Burt Campaneris' autograph or whoever. These guys just like live down there in the winter and they hang out. And uh, it's really casual. And I talked to Daryl Evans and was like, hey, when I was a kid, you were a big deal and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And It's good to meet you and everything. And he, he has such fond memories of those Tigers teams. Because the one thing I wanted to ask him, because it was in Scottsdale, actually, and that's where the Giants train. And, you know, he was very associated with the Giants for many, many years. And I said, you know, I know the Giants and the Braves are a thing people talk to you about, but do do you get a lot of stuff about the Tigers? And he says more people talk to him about his Tigers years than anything else. When he's at airports, when he's at malls, when anything happens, there are way more Tigers fans that go up to, to Daryl Evans and and want to talk about his career. And part of it, you think it might be recency bias, but he, he doesn't think so because that's what I asked him. He says it's just Tigers fans were more appreciative of him. He just like showed up like a gift. And immediately just started just wailing on the ball in ways that no one expected. Because, again, we're only about eight years into the free agency era. You you think of these guys when they're young and they come up and they develop. But Daryl Evans showed up fully formed in a Detroit Tigers uniform, hitting home runs into the upper deck and right field. And uh, he says he's never gotten more appreciation from a fan base than he got from Tigers fans.
1: And I I, I can believe that because here they are coming off Eno's camel, and you're talking about Richie Hebner, who was those the two first basemen. But at the same time, he his seven war season seventy three for Atlanta. His three his. I think his next three best outside of the one he had in San Francisco, I think it was eighty two, eighty three his eighty three season rather. His best seasons war wise were eighty five eighty seven. So he was just a the the eighty seven probably, yeah. Of, yeah, and to have that kind of production at his age. what I remember reading through uh the Saber I don't know Chris if you had a chance to read it on uh The 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 project does these great bios, and one of the stories that came out with Daryl Evans is that he believes in UFOs because he had an encounter (laughs) when he was in San Francisco. He's a weird dude. Yeah, and it was so it was so awesome because (laughs) it's it's not very obvious. (laughs) I'm reading the story and I'm laughing myself like I am now like hysterically because it's just like they call them Howdy Doody, which is because he looked like Howdy Doody in his early playing days. But but the the UFO story is something like remind me of bill spaceman lee just a guy out there like if you interviewed him and long enough you would probably get some nuggets where you could use it in a documentary but,
2: but you know what i think evans is more legit because spaceman lee was aware very early in his career that people thought he was weird and eccentric and i think he played into it i don't think evans ever had a clue that anyone was skeptical evans was just being like himself raw in the universe and just being like yeah so i saw ufo once and it just <laughs> he is even now like what he's probably what in his 60s 70s now when i when i met him he just seemed like the most genuine straightforward like oh yeah man it was crazy there is no like savvy to this dude and i don't mean that in a bad way it's just like right. he's just like this most honest dude you have ever met in your life and i could just picture him landing in detroit maybe out of a ufo in 1984 <laughs> and just like i'm I'm older now, they're no longer making me play much third base, thank God. All I'm going to do is hit dingers into that porch out in right field, and it's going to be amazing. And God love that guy.
0: Well, I I remember a story about a playoff game where he screwed up, like a, a big blunder.
2: Was like, you know, like eighty seven?
0: Eighty seven. Yeah. 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 It, 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 some people thought he could, might have cost him the game, and then the next game, the Tigers fans gave him a standing ovation.
2: Oh, which, they loved uh, him. They absolutely loved uh, him. I mean, they would, you know, they would ride crazy, terribly on, on some pitchers or some other guys, but like Daryl Evans was very well loved always.
0: Well, yeah, Craig. I, I guess when, while we have you, I figure I might as well ask you what you think about uh, the future of baseball. If you think we're going to see any baseball yes.
2: this year, man. I don't know. (laughs) I I, got to be honest. I I, just before we came on this, I saw that, uh, you know, the president, I think, has convened some group of business leaders to talk about reopening because obviously he has this incentive to want to do this. And it it consists of Rob Manfred and Roger Goodell and Stern and all the like, it's all sports related. Like there is this huge push right now on to have sports lead our way back into a real world. I think part of that is because sports is what led us out of the real world because no one took this seriously until that one Wednesday afternoon or evening when the NBA and everything just stopped. And so I think there's a, a huge push to want to get some real baseball going. I don't think anybody knows how to do it. My view is we should just do a big triple elimination or round robin tournament or something in August and September in Arizona and call it a year. But I think we'll see something approaching baseball in 2020. I feel like after it's all over, they're just going to decide that it doesn't count as far as statistics Mm -hmm. and things go. I think it's going to be an entertainment for the public more than anything else. But uh, it's not going to be a season that we recognize as a baseball season now.
0: It's kind of back to the old barnstorming days, except with no fans.
2: If if they embrace that, it'll work. Like if they if they yeah. say we need to cram in 87 games, hell or high water, it's not going to work. But if they're like, we're going to play for two months in neutral locations where we think it's generally safe, and at the end of it, we're going to declare a winner from some weird tournament, and it's just going to be about fun, that can work. Yeah. Um, if they try to claim it's a regular season and we're all back to normal, no one's going to buy that because no one's going to feel back to normal because their job is gone or they still can't leave their house or something's going on. So if they lean into it in the way that the the public wants it and the way the public is feeling, it'll be great. If they don't and they try to defy reality, then it's not going to go well.
1: And you know one of the things you mentioned too in a recent article about eliminating the league is going universal DH, which I think in some cases I think is long overdue anyway because I don't think of baseball uh, yeah. the, the way we did in the '90s. Now it's just kind of like, well, we have to play the Pirates or we have to play for whatever reason Miami. I don't yeah. know why. I shake my head about.
0: There's it. like you know, there's always an interleague series every yeah. every week.
1: Yeah, thank you for forcing this uh, rivalry with the Pirates. No thanks.
2: But yeah, everybody <laughs> loves that, too, that. I think that's only for Jim Leland because he lives near Pittsburgh and there's like the only reason we have a Pittsburgh Tigers rivalry is because of Jim Lee Lynn and of the 1909 World Series, which we all remember fondly, right? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's just, but it's. I really think that at some point, you're right. This is kind of like a a wash of a season. But I think at the same time, if you're going to try to say, okay, the season doesn't quote unquote technically count, why not just keep throwing stuff on the wall and see what happens? I mean, the the, the robo. Why don't you try out the robo strike zone once and for all? Or if you're worried about the game length and having the the runner starting a second, like Chris and I talked about that last week, why not take this the year to try those things out in? for the for the public to consume versus in a, in the Atlantic League where no one's going to see it anyway.
2: I agree. This is the this is the year to get weird, right? If you're ever going to get weird, get weird now. You can just say at the outset, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. We're just going to do things. We're going to get rid of divisions. We're going to play DHs everywhere. We're going to have uh, seven inning double headers. Uh, just you name it. Get weird this year because this is the chance to get your proof of concept with actual players as opposed to, you know, like hired guns from the uh, independent leagues. Yeah, I mean,
1: <sighs> so we're gonna, Chris, you side so
2: I mean, no are going to like it. I'm not going <laughs> to like it. I'm a purist myself. I mean, yeah. I, I'm old. I remember baseball for 40 years now. So it's like it's going to bother me in some ways. But it's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's just we just all need to survive this shit. I mean, this is all really bad on a cosmic level the the least important thing right now is whether or not baseball is pure in 2020 (laughs) it it would be so amazingly great if that was the most important thing i could care about right now but i don't i'm you know i'm worried about my parents dying i'm not gonna care if we have a dh in the nl right now so let's let's get wild let's be crazy give us something fun and frivolous to argue about
0: yeah you know I, i was just thinking like huh it might be fun to just have like real life fantasy Teams almost where they just po- throw a bunch of names in a in a tumbler. draft.
2: He, yeah. he, Mike Mike Trout and Chris Bryant are captains, and everybody just starts picking teams. Just do that. The only problem is that there would be no Tigers. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I guess I got to take Nico Goodrum. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. um. No, but I, I totally like anything fun like that. I don't know how you know, owners would feel about that, and you have to get players to buy in and stuff. But but I'm down with anything really. But yeah, it, it is. It's just it's such a weird time. I feel like uh we like, haven't uh, even
2: understood how weird this time is yet, man. Yep. I, I, I'm gonna plug what I do on my personal site. I, I in addition to what I write at NBC, I, I write at craigcalcaterra.com. And every day for about a month I've been doing something I call the pandemic diary. And this has been my sanity coping mechanism and that just I throw every bit of anxiety and every bit of thought that I have about what's going on in the world into this little post I do every morning. The, the theme that I keep coming back to is that we haven't yet fully embraced how different life is going to be after this, whatever this is. We, we're not going to turn on a switch and life is going to be normal again. And I don't think that's all bad. I mean, some of it's, going to be horrible but some of it's going to be great and some of it's going to be liberating and if we could if we can on the outside bust up some stodgy thinking about how the world works that's a good thing and maybe baseball is part of that I, you know, I, I like baseball. I have a great appreciation for baseball history. I'm name checking the 1909 World Series and Ralph Houck managing the 1961 Yankees at this point. So, yeah, I got a good grasp of that. But, you know, maybe we can get weird now. Maybe we can do something different and maybe we'll find something fun out of all of this horror. And there's, yeah, and
1: uh, uh... I checked out your diary and I really like the way it's styled out too, and just kind of some of some of the same thing. Like I, my father, unfortunately, right now is he's got dementia and he's in a home and we can't see him and sucks ah, and just he's been, he's been having he's had a fever and like he's just been he's going through hell right now and he's is a man who escaped from Cuba in a you know mm-hmm. just just to then just be he's just he's miserable and we, we talk to him every day we try to keep his spirits up you're right there's having a coping mechanism like your diet or like that that's really well structured and having seen that picture of tiger stadium looking like it's at the point the, the beginning of the t- deterioration which is like right around looks like that picture is like 2000 2001 when i'm
2: when i'm looking at it but oh the uh, one that you can see the i-75 sign yeah.
1: Yeah, it looks like uh, because based yeah. off because that Detroit welcome. That's when I started seeing fading. When it started fading out, and it was right around the time. One reason why I remember that kind of backdrop is the same. Looks like the same parking lot for this show that was on MTV in the mid nineties was a uh, called Buzzkill, and they did a prank yes. right in that same <laughs> parking lot. And I was telling Chris about this that I, I think it's such an episode, but it was one of the best things they did in front of the Tiger Stadium where they had a car where they're like, "Oh, we you know, you smashed the car for a dollar," and then one of the other guys that was in the joke was like, "Oh my god, my car, who smashed my car?" And the yep. ambulance takes them away. That was that was great. And it was right and it looks like in that same parking lot, but
2: uh. it, it was about that time I yeah. you know, I so I have a framed picture in my house. It's like literally I'm I'm recording this right now. I'm in my bedroom because my wife is downstairs watching a movie or something. But um right outside my bedroom, I have this large framed picture of Tiger Stadium. Uh I have two two framed pictures of Tiger Stadium. One is from its prime it's well maybe not it's prime but definitely a a height it's from the early 80s uh it's this very artistic picture of it's a panoramic of downtown detroit and there's the moon is shining down into tiger stadium it looks gorgeous and then the other one i have is um right after tiger stadium ceased to be used it probably was from 2001 2002 but before it was destroyed you know the letters are off the building it's fading it's a black and white picture it's sepia toned whatever and uh, Tiger Stadium is the most important building in baseball, as far as I'm concerned, for my life and my my baseball fandom. And uh, seeing it go from you know glorious to decrepit to gone, back when the the uh, the, the Navenfield grounds crew was still keeping up the. The, the property there before they started to redevelop it, I, I went there with my wife a few years ago and we, you know, we threw a ball around and we took some BP and all that kind of stuff there. It's just, it's so important to me and the passage of time and seeing things go from their height to their fade to their death. It's, it's some heavy shit. It's heavy shit when it's yeah. a baseball field and Now you think about it happening with society. You think about it happening with people and everything. And you you have to mark the time, right? You you have to figure out how things go through from beginning to middle to end and uh we're all figuring that out in a way that we never wanted to before but we're having to so i don't know maybe baseball's a constant maybe it's something we can hold on to i have no idea yeah i got really deep for you guys i'm sorry no no no
1: no no it's okay okay. chris
2: and i No, chris and i go ahead chris you know i spent a lot of the time that was one too many bourbon shots for me
0: (laughs) to go to that I, I spend a lot of time, and anybody who listens to us regularly is probably tired of hearing me talk about my granddad. But he, my granddad, just died at 95. He was a, uh, uh, he was the one who who kind of gave me my love for baseball. And he was a Washington baseball fan his whole life. Ah. And uh, he he, I've said this many times, but he was he was born 10 days before I guess it was the Senators back then. Maybe they were uh, yeah,
2: before they dads. won yep.
0: the yep. World yeah. Series. Yeah,
2: 1926 yeah. or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then he died a couple months after they won again finally and he'd been this fan his fan his whole life and it just felt like it's like a perfect little bookend and and weird coincidences like that with baseball and just uh i don't know for those of us who are who love baseball i I say it's kind of genetic and it's in our blood and it it means more than just a game and i was just uh even this is silly i was watching avengers endgame the other day it's spoiler uh after the first thing they show after the five-year gap is
2: an empty city field. Yeah. City field. That, that was huge. That hit me hard. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's baseball is not that important in the grand scheme of things, but it's, you know, we all have our thing we grab onto. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me, if you, if you just throw it a year in the 20th century, Say, you know, oh, 1947, my first thought always is going to be what was going on in baseball that year, because I just Jackie got Robinson. To that. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie Robinson, uh, you know, Dodgers Yankees World Series, the whole deal. and And you just sort of think about that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. that's what that's what helps me mark the time. That mark the time. I'm I'm now quoting Field of Dreams, a movie I absolutely <laughs> hate. But uh, but it's true. You know, it's you, you grab onto whatever life preserver you can grab onto when times get weird, and that's what we're going to grab onto. At least us in this little corner of the internet in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, we I, I, like I've I've told Chris like there's there's times where I will uh my brother and I will talk about a just. Some tiger like a random tigers game we went to in ninety five when the Brewers were still in the A L and it was rained out and the cards, just the numbers, and all that stuff, and then just seeing it now the way it is. I mean I have to go to out of I'm you know, I'm playing OOTP, the uh the, the simulator yeah. right now and just and that's helping me all of a sudden seeing stats again for the first time in a while. Like there's like they're virtual baseball cards and all these memories are flashing back and that's what I have for now. I can't go to the you know, we're supposed to go to opening day minor league uh, the West Michigan game last week. We, and instead, uh, Dan Hasty did a really cool thing. They did Satomatic on air doing Satomatic. And it was a really cool thing. And it was something that I the, the take the imagination to take a game like that you're playing as kids and uh, have it like just to, to fill the, the gap like that. You're seeing a lot of one cool thing about this with baseball, at least like your blog. Like the, the idea for that is really cool. Would that be something that you normally would do? If baseball was going on, you think? No, or? I
2: never would have. I, it takes too much time, right? I mean, yeah. so I the game was two and a half hours long. I think because I was pausing it and writing and then researching something mm-hmm. for background or whatever, it probably took me like seven hours to get through that thing. <laughs> and like during the baseball season, I don't have that kind of time. That just that's something I never would have done. I'm glad I did it. I, you know, it's not worth it, mm-hmm. but I I'm glad that I had a chance to to go revisit some baseball of my youth.
0: Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people appreciate that. You know, it gives us. It's, you know, a lot of people have a lot of time on their hands, and those of us who are, are, you know, fortunate enough to be able to work from home and not, you know, struggle to to eat and uh, to find shelter and healthcare and all that stuff. You know, that there's still there's a lot of kind of boredom that seeps in, and it's nice to be able to to, to still. It's a high-class problem in.
2: to have. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a very high-class problem to have, but you know what? Yeah. It's still a thing. And we all we all got to find our way through this. And if you can find it through 40 year old baseball or if you can find it through music or if you can find it through anything or writing or whatever you need to do, just you just got to survive, man. You just got to keep going and walking forward. So on that note, uh, Craig, thanks so much for
1: listening to or (laughs) listening to us. I was going to do the I was was listening. No, no, (laughs) (laughs) We're we're coming out. We're going to put the links uh, to your to your your journal, excuse me, diary, I should say, and also to the link to the story if you have not checked it out. And you can find him on Twitter, all one word, all lowercase, correct? Yep. All right. And, of course, you can find him, all his other work on NBC Sports Hardball Talk, really good blog. Again, you guys do a great job with on the stay in baseball stuff. That I really like the 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 last piece I read too was about uh, uh, Philly's broadcaster uh, Harry Callis because I, I love hearing about other broadcasters. Great voice, you know, great voice his enthusiasm for the game, it, it was awesome. And then the, my I'm a big I'm a big Expos fan. I have uh, I, I I do have a couple well one book that the author shall not be named, but uh, I do have four – away. Up, up and away. Yep, I do have that book. But I have what four expos hats. I have uh, I have a, a, a Pedro <laughs> Martinez jersey somewhere in my closet.
2: And well, it, yeah, as we're recording this today, it is the uh, well, I guess that would be the fifty-first anniversary of the first expos home game. Yes, in Jerry Park in Montreal, the first major league regular season game outside of the United States. I uh, wrote about that today at Hardball Talk. That's another thing we're doing now is we have no baseball. We can talk about baseball history and yeah, first first Expos game at home, 1969 on this date. It's it's uh it's insane to think about where we've come in 50 years in baseball. But I don't know without a without it being here, without actual games. Thank God baseball has such a rich history because there's so much you can just dive into. Yeah, Jerry
1: Larry Jester was the opening day pitcher. And I got that trivia question right a couple of years ago from my friends, and there was a uh, – I, I won us a $50 gift card. That's all I won us for like a, a
2: restaurant. And they and looked at you card. like you're a freak. Like, how do you know that? Yeah, exactly. How do you know any expo from 1969 other than Rusty Stop?
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, look, guys, we got free breadsticks now, so shut up. So, <laughs> no, hey, it's
2: worth it. Don't <laughs> question when you get free breadsticks.
1: On that mo- Craig, thanks so much for joining us. We really
2: appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys.
1: Yes, the oh, gosh, now and we're back here on tigers land. srd on the tiger miley report network thanks again for craig calcaterra for joining us of hardball times you can find on mbc sports and he's a really good diary too. You can find it as well on his twitter bio there so his twitter is all one word craig calcaterra all lowercase so if you get a chance follow him his blog piece was great Chris, it was good to talk. I mean, I could talk old baseball all the time without even Bat and I looking at a Baseball Reference, and the reason why I mentioned early, I mentioned in the podcast that I've been playing a lot of out of the park baseball, and I'm right now I just started. So I was going to do recaps of the minor leagues and stuff like that, but it was really hard to do because it was too much like time to get all the rosters right and everything. So instead, I took over the 1980 Tigers, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm starting a project where I'm going to essentially run the Tigers right before their prime because they have the Jason – this is before the Jason Thompson trade, which happened later on that year in 80, where this is around the time that, like, what if I don't trade Howard Johnson kind of thing and all these, like, what-if scenarios because I was doing my research for Mickey Telton piece for Motor State Bengals, and I found out that Sparky Anderson had a lot of power vetoing trades, which is why, like, Bill Bill Joy yeah, stepped down in 1990 suddenly – And he was the one that engineered the Mickey Thelton trade. That was his final trade as Tiger's GM. And, yeah, that Sparky Anderson wielded a lot of power. Did not know that. And so, anywho, playing this game, I realized, like, just going back through some of these cards and, like, some of these players and getting familiar with even strategy for that matter, which I've enjoyed.
0: Yeah, you know, I need to to get into something like that. You know, I I made the mistake of showing my son Minecraft. I mean, he had seen some of it on, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I showed him how to play it on my old PlayStation Three, and, and he's spending way too much time playing Minecraft now. Oh boy! Uh, I, it feels like a parenting mistake. Oh, you know, it's he's flexing his creativity a little bit, but uh, so I'm not uh, not getting a whole lot of gaming in. But I do I'd, I'd like to get in there and do do something. One of these days, I'm
1: telling you this right now, man. It is a very very addictive game. It's I have so during like so during i will be working from home. I'm thankful I've been able to work from home, but what I've been, what's been happening is, is that I got you get you can go also called the perfect game. So you can get a pack of cards, you get six packs of cards, and that's how you build out your roster. And that's been my daily thing. I go in and the simulation start every 28 minutes. So you set your lineup, you go around. Right now, I'm in season two. I'm one and a half games back of first place in the the AL or AC West Division behind the Charlotte Warblers. I am the Havana Sugar Kings. And so there was a Twitter somebody on Twitter, uh, Dan Shea talk about building an online league. So Chris, if you get on here, I think you and I could have a lot of fun with this. So and we'd have a lot of fun watching the movie Sugar. So we're gonna start with talk about movie Sugar. We'll get to the eighty six minutes right after this. But so Chris, I I like this movie a lot. it was it struck a lot of chords with me because obviously it's a lot of it's it's all subtit it's all subtitles. So fair warning for anybody out there who doesn't like subtitles, the movies predominantly in Spanish and well, we we get start with the story too well, I should have started with the story but the story is of a ball player from the Dominican Republic who plays for the Kansas City Knights the fictional yeah.
0: Knights yeah yeah you know it, it's uh, one thing i really liked about it is, is it's just it's a baseball story that you don't it's a very prominent baseball story this is this happens all over the country or at least it did when baseball was being played but it's a story you don't hear told very often at all about, you know, these kids coming from other countries and they barely speak the language or don't speak it at all and how hard it is for them to adjust and, you know, it, how difficult it is to be kind of out on your own with uh, the with basically, I think in the movie he said he had like two years of, of high school uh, before and, and uh, you know, they get the baseball stuff. Some of it's a little bit like if you're a hardcore baseball fan, you'd be like, wait, what's going on here? Why is that? Like he's already signed for money and then he's going to get called up for spring training and stuff like that. Uh, but and the actual baseball action is not the best I've seen. It's not super egregious, but there's just you know some some of the throws don't quite look right. But the the kids look about right, and it's really it's really well done to to immerse you in kind of first you, you see a little bit of the life there on the complex down in the Dominican. And and then you so you see it's kind of nice there and then he goes back to his house so you see the poverty and things like that and he's talking about the dreams of, of going and very early in the movie a random guy uh, takes him aside and tries to teach him a spike curveball or to- just tells him about the spike curveball which seemed kind of unrealistic to me like he hadn't heard that before but it seems to be his money pitch and yes sure enough he uh, he makes his way out of the Dominican and goes to I think it's Arizona. Yep. Where they have them in in training, and uh, so there, you know, he's he's that's a culture shock for him. He's going and uh, you know trying to learn how to get food. That's one of the. And I've heard stories like these before. You know, where where these guys they don't know how to speak English, so they're trying to eat, and it's really like, he only knew the word French toast. So he kept getting French toast all the time. And, and you see it when he's talking on his on the phone to, I don't know if it's his girlfriend or his sister, when I mean, he talks about how, how sweet the food is, because that's all he knows how to order. And it's just these little things that you don't necessarily think about unless you kind of immerse yourself in these lower levels of the minors and talk to these guys. And then from, from there, you know, the spring training, he actually, he makes an A-ball team, which is, you know, that's good. He's uh, got a, a pretty advanced assignment. But he's heading off to Iowa, which of course he's never heard of in his life. I uh, like, like yeah, that
1: part where, he, like, part. where he goes, I, I guess I-A? Yeah. I, I, e- yeah 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 see yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah no it's it's really and, and like that happens. This is basically he's up to the Midwest League, which is of course we we cover cover that uh, fairly frequently with the, when we go to Whitecaps games, and it just made me think of all the uh, the young Latin kids that we've seen on on the Whitecaps, and they they get all that stuff right. You know, he goes and he's staying with a, a host family which is how they do it in low a ball. And you know, he's trying to trying to fit in, but it's just, it's very hard. So yeah, it's, it's a really, like I said, it's a unique perspective. Most, most baseball movies aren't about something like this. And in, in, I think it's very, it's, it's definitely worth watching because it's just, it's something that is, is realistic and that we don't, it's it's a perspective you don't often get.
1: The, the, the add on that, Chris, the one of the things that the, the authentic part of it, what I yeah. dug about it the most from a language standpoint, is even for one of the things that when he was talking about, like when him talking to his parents, the the host parents rather, and like just that moment, the moment that I really like, that i that i liked a lot was when he he goes out of his way to help him out like he starts showing his, his gratitude and showing like the little things like he mm-hmm. he fixes the drawer the the fixing the drawer yeah yeah fixing the drawer and what have you and then just kind of always being you know thank you you're welcome kind of thing and but the, also the mixed signal thing you know like the mixed signal we had with the yeah. daughter too which i thought there was a i thought was a very important part because i think that kind of shows it, the mental side of like how mental baseball really is, and not just you can go out there and and just kind of like going, okay he before he was the king of the world down there because he ate like a king, and one of the things that they didn't I loved was it showed the food, they showed the yuca and the rice and the beans and mm-hmm. what have you but the the racism part I hate to say this, but they get they got of dead on. I mean, there's just that yeah. kind of like you know, uh, kind of the similar thing where people kind of. So, do you have meatloaf where you're from? I mean, look, I, look, I, how many times have been asked that, like uh, questions like that, where you're like, or like even when you, the, the question even asked the second baseman, he's like, "So, do you uh, surf?" Because he's from California. The <laughs> yeah. assumptions that people make. Yeah. That that right there, that right there, I could totally 100 percent go. Yeah, that happens yeah. quite a bit.
0: Do y'all people eat oatmeal? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's a there's a ton of really great scenes in this movie like the the ones when they're in spring training and he's there with his, his uh, buddies from the academy and they get in their hotel rooms and they see mini bars for the first time so they're just snagging beer and they're like all right united states and they turn on tv and there's a porno oh yeah they're like all right <laughs> united states and the guy's like listen no don't do that you can't it costs money but yeah there's there's a lot of stuff and, and basically you know the, the kid sugar i mean it's his nickname he's kind of a sensitive brooding kid you know it, and you really you know for a while he's there with his buddy who's playing third base and then you know, Sugar gets hurt in kind of uh, just, you know, trying to cover the bag and he tweaks his ankle or something like that. And then his buddy gets a cut. Basically, instead of going back to play baseball in the Dominican or whatever, he just decides he's going to go to New York because uh, he's got a cousin up there. And then he's, he's kind of forging a friendship with this kind of high draft pick kid named Johnson, who's from Stanford. And, and you see like that he's a nice guy and he's trying to reach out and be friends with him. But he's also got he's just got so many more options. He speaks a language. He's got a Stanford education. And then one day he's gone. He gets promoted. And it's just like, yeah, you can you really feel how alone this guy is and like you said he, he kind of he feels like there's an attraction between him and i think it's the granddaughter of the oh, people the grandda- he's staying grandda- with. your granddaughter okay yeah and, and it seems like there's mutual attraction and then he, he tries to act on it uh not in like any aggressive way or anything like that and then he gets rebuffed and it's suddenly it's like man he just he's just so alone right now and then they bring in one of his buddies they call them up and he's kind of like the hot new thing and it's just like huh you know it, it all feels very realistic to me that the emotions of baseball playing this for a living and uh, you know, it kind of from there it uh, goes some interesting places. But I just really think it's a good, good uh, in the way it's filmed. Even is really well, well, well done. There's some, there's one particular kind of long tracking shot that really I think kind of hits home his loneliness and his isolation. He's walking for I think he's in the hotel and he's walking down and he, just this long shot of him walking through an arcade. And he finally gets to this bowling alley and he sees his teammates bowling and having fun. And he just kind of looks at them. And then he walks, he turns around and goes back to his room. And it's just like, oh, man, I have like just as a... Sensitive, depressed young kid. I remember doing stuff like that, going up to a party, and then instead of going in, just turning around and going home. Like I, I understand that, and so yeah, I like think I said I think it was well made and, and definitely worth watching.
1: Yeah, in terms of even if in terms of like a from a baseball standpoint, you're right. The action doesn't. It's kind of choppy, but for what it's worth, <laughs> the stories were really great, and I would
0: give this a, a fifty grade. Yeah, I go fifty-five. It's maybe it's sixty. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, 50, yeah. It's it's definitely it's more of a baseball movie than everybody wants some. Uh, it's it's a an entirely different movie. Everybody wants some. It's just you know, it's all about having fun and stuff. And this is this is the serious. Like this is this is his livelihood. And you see the the obstacles that I think a lot of people don't really think about. And it's just a just nice nice perspective on things. And this was what made two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yep. But uh, but it's it's pretty pretty timeless. I would say I, it it feels just as real right now as it did back then. And probably will stay this way and who knows what's going to happen in the future when they keep cutting these minor league teams i don't know how how badly or when they institute an international draft jeez how many of these kids in, in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and places like that are just going to get left by the wayside?
1: Yeah, there was a uh, there was an art. We over at Motor City Bengals did a so I think it was Jay that retweeted this that th- there's some possibility that with this pandemic some teams might be able to come back financially. That oh, is, absolutely, you know, yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just but how bad how bad things are right now. It's in terms of even. Right now, there's a chance there's been rumors that Baltimore's been, like, there's teams out there preparing for, like, 40 rounds draft. Some people are still preparing for 10. But even that aside you look at the landscape about some of these international players that if they get rid of the minor league and this is where I saw the article it was on com, and the article the headline just says it all we're in the end game now in terms of uh, the use okay. of Avengers of reference again that we did earlier um, there is a negotiations are set up to come up again on April 22nd so that's coming up so you know, in terms of getting rid of the the short season ball and all the forty teams that that's going to come up
0: again no oh, absolutely and and I think I don't think there's any way they can they can prevent it now i think it's it's absolutely going to happen because they just have uh, like you said that this a lot of these teams are just not going to be able to make it financially, and baseball is worried about their own pocketbooks and they're not going to subsidize minor league baseball any more than they already do and it's yeah it's it's a, it's a damn shame yeah but go, uh go ahead, Chris, no and that, that Oh, it just reminded me of one other thing of the, of the the movie that we didn't touch on which was just also very realistic is, is him sending money back to his family you know he gets a check for 500 dollars and he's sending it back to his family and then you know you see when when he gets called up or whatever he calls his mom and she's working in like a shirt factory and then later on you see him in a in store and he looks at a little t-shirt and it says made in the Dominican Republic and you can tell what he's thinking and, I don't know it's just uh yeah, good good stuff but uh, yeah, man, I, I, I'm disappointed and saddened for a lot of these minor league teams, for the future of a lot of these minor leaguers. Who, who knows what's going to happen? It's that, that sort of money. I think what they say in, in that movie, he got like $15,000, but that still can be kind of life-changing for a lot of these kids. And, and for that to happen to fewer of them is, is a shame. But baseball, you know, it's kind of cutthroat. They're going to try to save money any way they can. And one thing that, that I was thinking about today, like we know – in this agreement that they worked out that players players on the 40-man or whatever, they're going to get a full year of service time. But I was curious about what's going to happen with the minor leaguers. Because like, there's there's almost certainly not going to be any sort of minor league season this year at all. But I, I wonder if they're just all going to progress. And, and that means like that many more players are going to be available in the Rule 5 draft next year, or if they will screw the minor leaguers and say, no, that year doesn't count. You're, you're our property for one more year. Like I don't know what governs that and, and what will happen, but it's, it's one of those things that I didn't think about until just now. I was actually thinking of it in the frame of like, huh, oh, I could do a Rule 5 preview right now, but uh somebody need to get some clarification on from somebody.
1: Speaking of uh, the clarification, by the way, Chris, some of the, the things that are coming out with, and I'll, I'll also post this link... On our show description, I sh- the in terms the M game now, what I was mentioning earlier, insiders with direct knowledge of proposals in both MLB and MILB pegged the survival of minor league baseball as an operating entity. With some of the some of the prof- MLB would do some of these acts, it developed its own franchise system. So St. Paul, Sugarland, Texas, as AAA markets, with another addition in New Orleans again, which th- to me doesn't make any sense. It didn't work it really before. It hasn't worked here. It's the Zephyrs or the Baby Cakes or whatever—it has never worked. So why would you put it back there? But and two or three current AAA teams demoted. So like Fresno would be a Double A team. Mm-hmm. Allocated affiliates MLB or minor league teams would have no say over their parent teams. So you would never see a situation again where the Nationals are going back they, the, the affiliate with the West Coast team. So mm-hmm. um, and they would also play ML or ML teams would have more power to dictate terms when it comes to facilities and operations. So. One of the things they said: Don't be surprised if MLB mandates every minor league team to adopt ticket, Tickets.com technology or demand it to use the customer data for their own marketing efforts.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it, it is. It's going to be a, a permanently transformative event for minor league baseball. It's a little bit like when we, we talked about the battered bastards of baseball, like you know the, how independent leagues how they kind of got shut down from being an, an affiliated ball, but sprung up everywhere. There's going to be something like that happening where there's just going to major league baseball is going to assert as much control as they possibly can. And a lot of these independently kind of run teams are are just going to go by the wayside or sell for money and and get out. And maybe we'll see some more independent league action, but it's going to be drastically different in the next couple of years, five years, 10 years.
1: Yeah, it's going to change. Even with, like, with mention, Craig mentioned earlier in the show, Craig or Rob Manfield is part of Trump's something, I forgot what committee he's part of. You don't think he's going to get a tax haven credit for that or get some help
0: (laughs) on his own initiatives? Well, no. Absolutely. I think, you know, Craig didn't say it, but basically, well, I think he did say it, actually. Like, you know, the, getting sports going seems to be one of the utmost priorities, because that's what makes people stop paying attention to what's going on in government. You know, for right now, all people do is watch pandemic pressers or Netflix. It's the old bread and circuses line, right? You, if people aren't paying attention to what you're doing, you can do a lot more. And that goes for, you know, everybody in government. It's not just uh, not just the party in power, I, I think. Uh, and, and I'm sure there's a little bit of a you know, palliative effect or whatever. They want people to be comforted by baseball. But I mean, I think I, Harris just tweeted out that, that the PGA Tour is planning on coming back in mid June. I think that's kind of a completely different animal than baseball because it's such an individual sport and you can, you can, it's a whole lot easier to make golf a, an individualized sport than it is baseball. Yeah. You know? But, that's the first step.
1: Well, it's something. I mean, at this point too, even with the yeah. NFL, the NFL draft's what going to be virtual. So anyway,
0: yeah, I'll be watching the hell out of golf, even though I don't care. <laughs> oh, look at this! Oh, oh. what a shot!
1: <laughs> oh, you get that on the uh, you get that right on the power four. I mean, I've, I've I, like I've been I told myself this year was going to. I got a set of golf clubs last year for fifty bucks off of a buddy of mine. You and I should go golfing. I think that if you know if if, if there's one thing, after this thing's over, Chris, and we mm-hmm. haven't done. We've done. We've you know we've hung out a lot. The one thing we haven't done yet, we haven't played a sport. You know that? We haven't played a softball. We, hey, we,
0: we went bowling.
1: Oh, that, oh, that's true. Yeah, we did go bowling. That's right. Right. That's right. That's true. Touche.
0: You're right, right. Man, let's go bowling. You know, I haven't played golf in like 5 or 6 years. We used to have at my work, we used to have a league where we'd play every Thursday, of course, like 5 minutes from from my work. And I was I'm a very casual golfer. I uh, I always told myself like if I ever am actively seeking ways to get better at golf, then I just was going to quit. Uh, and then, you know, I had a kid and I'm like, ah, I don't want to be in this golf league anymore. So I, I have clubs, but I haven't played in forever. We actually have been, there's a golf course just across the street from us. And we've been, it's closed down, of course. So we've been using their, their cut path for nice walks and bike rides. And it's fantastic. And it makes me like, it bumps me out that they're going to be playing golf there again soon because I won't be able to use it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a nice, relaxing game unless you take it seriously.
1: Yeah. And then you get kind of angry for no reason, what have you. So it, mm-hmm. it, is, it is a little frustrating. I just want to get it decent enough to where I'm not. You know, in a uh, mm-hmm. idiotic shape. But, anywho, let's move on, and let's talk about the 86 Mets. And so, for this situation, we're this time I'm going to be talking about the hitting. Chris is going to be doing the the, the pitching and how this team came together. Of course, one of the most fascinating things about this team is they were supposed to win multiple World Series and didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, but just a, a lot of uh, cocaine, a lot of uh, partying, <laughs> a lot of just... A lot of stuff, Chris, went into this team, but let's start. Let's start with what I think is, to me at least, in my opinion, a, a, a pitching staff that you were, you almost blown away that how they got there. i I mean, I'll, like everyone wants to know who else besides Dwight Gooden can you look at it on that team.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it it uh, it's kind of remarkable. Like so, they that team won 108 games, which is uh, like tied for ninth all time in in total number of wins for a season. It, I mean, that just and, and you you nailed it. Like this was a team that was marched for a dynasty. And uh, you know the best laid plans don't don't always work out. But yeah, they were they were tied for the best uh, pitching in 1986 uh, in terms of WAR with the Angels, who uh, which kind of surprised me. They had the lowest ERA in baseball at 3.11, lowest uh, FIP at 3.31, second highest strikeout rate, seventh lowest walk rate. But they didn't have that year. They didn't have any one dominant starter. For as good as Dwight Gooden was, he he wasn't nearly as as down as he had been a couple of years before. But they had four guys who went between four and five WAR. The fan graphs and they were just an incredibly consistent pitching staff including the bullpen they had 12 pitchers who, who made it in at least 10 games and only two of them had an era above 388 and, and so he was like yeah everybody was under four i think the, the biggest move possibly for the formation of the the 86 mets was uh the hiring of their gm frank cashen in 1980 uh, he, he had been the gm of the kind of great Orioles teams in the late '60s and early '70s, and he came to the Mets uh, when it was a, when Fred Wilpon bought the team, and uh, Fred Wilpon and Nelson Doubleday, I guess I don't know if he's from Doubleday Publishing or whatever, but yeah, uh, no, same, yeah, same, same guy. Yeah, so they made uh, Cashin made a ton of big moves, and a lot of them were, were really smart, and, and you'll I think you'll realize that as we talk about this. But uh, the the foundation for that pitching rotation really started in uh, April 1982 when the Mets acquired Ron Darling from the Rangers for future Tiger Walt Terrell. Uh, oh, with future Tiger Walt Terrell. So he and Terrell came to the Mets for, for veteran outfielder Lima Zilli. And that's one of those things, where, you know, Craig was talking about those old Texas teams. It's like you look at it now and you go, what the hell was Texas doing? They traded two pitchers for this guy who was like a washed up outfielder. Uh, but I guess he didn't appear to be washed up at that point. It just looked like he was having a down year. What's was, was kind of wild, though, was Darling was the Rangers' first-round pick the year before, ninth overall. And it's just kind of wild to think, like, oh, they just traded him a year later. He, he did struggle a little bit in Double A in his first year and the, the minors. But they so the, I, the Rangers cut bait. And he always had some trouble with walks. But he earned a, a rotation spot with the Mets in 84, uh, but he became an all-star in 85, and then in 86, he went 15-6 and six with a 2.81 ERA in 237 innings. You know, he was basically their number two starter, I think. Uh, and then a little later, in 82, the Mets used their fifth, fifth pick draft on a, uh, a kid out of Tampa named Dwight Gooden, who was incredibly young for the draft. He, he didn't turn 18 until November, so he was like, you know, 17 and a half when he was drafted, and he just shot through the minors. It's just a, a poster child, kind of, eventually, you know, everybody kind of knows who Dwight Gooden is, but give a poster child of the dangers of maybe overworking young pitchers and also the dangers of putting 19-year-olds in a clubhouse full of, of partiers, which is unfortunate. You know, he's kind of one of the great uh, what-could-have-beens. But, uh, yeah, he came up in 84 as a 19-year-old and went 17-8 and with a 2-6 ERA, 217 innings or something like that. And, and he actually, as a rookie, he set a major league record for strikeouts per nine innings at 11.39, which, you know, that's been surpassed a lot in the last few years. But at that point, that was the, the highest. The previous record was... Uh, 10.71 set by Sam McDonald in 1965. So this was a 20-year record. He just came up as a 19-year-old and shattered it, which is amazing. You know, I I remember people being like way into Dwight Gooden, but I was still a little bit too young to understand what was going on. But uh, no one had seen anything quite like it then. And then, you know, as a, as a as a follow-up, he came back as a as a 20-year-old and put up one of the great seasons in pitching history. Particularly if you go by Baseball Reference, he he went 24 and four with a 1.53 ERA. In 276 innings. That's just bonkers. As a 20-year-old, he won the Cy Young, and it was 12.2 war to baseball reference, which is an insane number. Like, I can't remember. It's rare for pitchers to get 10 and it's to get 12, which is, that's insane. It's it's the fourth best since 1900, according to baseball reference, uh, behind two Walter Johnson seasons and one Cy Young season. So really, it's like the best pitching season of all time, according to them. I don't count anything before like the 50s. But you know, those were his first two years. And then in 86, you know, his strikeouts took a huge tumble you know maybe don't have a kid throw 500 innings before he turns 21 hey, I don't know crazy but he was still kind of the unquestioned ace of the staff and he went he ended up going 17 and 6 with a 2.84 ERA tough down year 2.84 ERA and 250 innings with 12 complete games complete games so so you and these are two kids. So Darling was like 24 and Gooden was 21. And then the third piece, the rotation that showed up was Rick Aguilera. And he was actually their fifth starter for most of the uh, the 86 season. But uh, the Mets drafted him in June of 83 in the third round out of BYU. And he, he joined the uh, rotation officially in 85. But like I said, he was a fifth starter. So and he put up a 3.2 ERA over 122 innings, uh, and uh, his 3.88 ERA in '86 was actually below average. It was like a 93 ERA plus, but that's not bad for a fifth starter. Uh, <laughs> I think you'd take that. Uh, and he also made eight relief appearances for them in '86, which is kind of foreshadowing. He he went on to become a pretty damn good closer for the Twins, I believe, um, a few years later. Then uh, the fourth big piece of the rotation, literally and figuratively, came uh, in December of '83 when. The Mets acquired the old hefty lefty Sid Fernandez in a trade with the Dodgers for Bob Baylor and Carlos Diaz. I didn't even bother looking them up because I never heard of them. Next. <laughs> Spen- so the Dodgers Splendid, drafted Was
1: it called him Spl- Splendid Sid? Is that what his name was or something?
0: Uh, El like? Sid, I think. El Sid, okay. Yeah, the Dodgers. I didn't realize he came from the Dodgers. They drafted him in the third round out of Hawaii, which I also didn't realize. He was out of Honolulu. And it's another kid. He tore through the minors. He made his MLB debut as a 20-year-old in 83. And then he split time between AAA and New York a 21 year old in 84 and he did a little bit of that in 85 too but he he earned a spot in the rotation as by putting up a 2.8 era over 170 innings and then uh, in 86 he was an all-star he went 16 and 6 with a 3.52 era and 200 strikeouts in 204 innings so that's like that's their fourth starter and he's uh what 23 year old 24 year old striking out 200 uh so yeah i mean this is a strong strong rotation and then they top it off uh with the final piece of the puzzle an old, old veteran at the age of 28, which is basically how old Spencer Turnbull is now. I think he was the the crafty lefty Bob Ojeda, who came to the Mets in an eight-player trade with Boston right before the '86 season. So that was, uh, and he was pretty unspectacular with with Boston. He was okay. Uh, and one interesting thing is is the uh, one of the other players that went from the Mets to the Red Sox in that in that trade was Calvin Schiraldi, who managed to lose both Game Six and Game Seven of the '86 World Series. So that's that's a tough break. But yeah, Ojeda was absolutely stellar in 86 he went 18 and 5 with a 257 era in 217 innings he would finish fourth in the cy young vote it was easily the best year of his career so talk about a timely trade move for them so that i mean that's just you know an outstanding rotation there and then their bullpen was really solid they you know back then clearly when guys are throwing 12 complete games the bullpen wasn't used quite as much but they had basically two super relievers and roger mcdowell and jesse roscoe and they both kind of served as a two-headed closer and then they had a couple other guys they had doug sisk working as, I assume, like a reliable ground ball guy. They had Rick Anderson, current Tigers pitching coach. He was there, it was like his first year in the majors. He was like 28. Uh, and lefty Randy Neiman and Bruce Berigny providing help. So of those guys, Orozco was the first piece to arrive. He was really, you, you could say he was the first piece of the championship team to arrive, really, because he, he got to the Mets in a trade with the Twins in 1979. And then he had all-star seasons in 83 and 84. He wasn't quite as good in 85 and 6, but he was still pretty damn good. In 86, he went 8 and 6 with a 2-3-3 three, three RA and 21 saves. And then McDowell was drafted by the Mets in the third round of 82 out of Bowling Green. There's a little matching for you. I assume they were in the Mac back then. Who knows? But he kind of quick. He's one of those guys who quickly floundered as a starter in the minors. But they moved him to the bullpen, and then he he shot to, to the majors. Joined the Mets as a, as reliever in '85, and he was just just a crazy workhorse in '86. as a reliever, he went 14 and nine with a 3.02 ERA and 22 saves and 128 innings over 75 games. Wow. So that that uh, I mean that's a lot of that's a lot of work. Not to mention, pitcher,
1: uh, but, not to mention, he was the he is the face of rock and jock softball for MTV. Project yes, I forgot.
0: Yeah, you know, and forgot I about that. He was always pitching.
1: Yeah, he was also pitching real quick. so I know about Doug Sisk. He actually he threw a wiffle ball at a paperboy's head, nailing. He was teasing the dog. He ripped the tendons <laughs> in his elbow doing that. Injury. Oh my god. Yeah, it was it was That's a story insane. I found via I found that via C- the CBER the C- project. These bio projects are fantastic. But he yeah, this how he that was his freshman year of college. And that's what happened. He tore that, like, throwing a wiffle ball. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted yeah, to uh, – I, I didn't want to forget that story. So, go
0: ahead. Yeah, I was just going to finish up uh, just touching on the, the playoffs a little bit that, uh, that year. Because this was – it's just a remarkable year, remarkable team, 108 wins. And then they had one of the great uh, National League Championship Series of all time against Houston. We've talked about it a bunch before with, with Mike Scott just being untouchable. But, uh, so – Ron Darling, he gave up five runs in his only NLCS start, but he was really good in the World Series. He went 1-1 one one with a 1-5-3 ERA. Actually, I think he started with 14 scoreless innings, despite walking 10 and striking out 12. It was, it was a different era. He started game one in the World Series, but lost uh, despite just one unearned run, because, you know, it's just a tough break in seven innings. Then he had seven scoreless in game four to help the Mets pull to a 2-2 tie in the series. And he started the uh, seventh game, but gave up three runs and was pulled in the fourth. So he was kind of out of gas at that point. Gooden actually had a pretty bad postseason. He went winless. Uh, He pitched very well in LCS. He gave up just two runs in 17 innings, but he ran into Mike Scott in in game one, like we said. And then it was a game, game five, 10 innings of one run ball against Nolan Ryan. What a matchup, you know, that uh, elite old flamethrower against the young upstart. But the Mets eventually won that game in 12th, uh, in the 12th inning. So he didn't get credit for the victory, even though 10, 10 innings of one-run ball, it's nuts. Uh, he got battered in the World Series, though. He gave up eight runs in just nine innings and lost games two and five. So he was at, I don't know, innings 300 and 304 or whatever at that point. So maybe, yeah, maybe a little tired. Uh, Ojeda, Ojeda was, maybe was the, the hero of the playoffs for them. He gave up just seven runs in 27 postseeding innings. Won game two of the NLCS and game three of the World Series. Uh and he gave up just two runs over six innings in the, the famous Game 6 of the World Series. Uh, Sid Fernandez made one start in the National League uh, in LCS, losing to Mike Scott again, of course. But then he moved to the bullpen in the World Series, where he was really good. Uh, struck out 10 over six in one third innings of one-run ball. So it was kind of, you know, what you see these these guys, they move to the bullpen once the games uh, get spread out a little bit more. Same thing with Aguilar; He moved to the bullpen. We, we kind of foreshadowed that earlier. He, he was five with five scoreless in the National League uh, Championship Series and then made two appearances in the World Series. I gave up a couple runs in game two, and then he was famously looking like he was going to be the goat of the World Series. Came into game six in the tie. What was it? Tied at three-three, uh, and gave up a lead-off home run to Dave Henderson, and then a two-out RBI single to Mari Barretts. The Boston was up five-three, but then then the miracle. The miracle happened. the two-out rally, the most uh, unbelievable things you'll ever see with Bill Buckner and all that stuff. And Aguilar actually got the win despite looking like he was going to be the one who got the loss. And then finally, we we'll finished up with with uh, Roscoe McDowell. They were basically the only two relievers used in the the postseason through 28 innings between them. Roscoe was particularly good. Uh, Five and two scoreless innings in the World Series, picked up the saves in game four. And in Game 7, when he struck out Marty Barrett, swinging to give the Mets their second World Series ring ever, and uh, as you said, seemingly kicking off a dynasty, and it was the dynasty that would never be, unfortunately. So that's the pitching. A really impressive group of arms.
1: And that's a, one of the things I wanted to mention, too, about Mel Stoudemire, who was a pitching coach, is that's when, before you, everybody growing up knew Mel Stoudemire is. The Yankees, well, probably in our generation perhaps, remember more his, his work with the Yankees, but he did a fantastic job of managing. Like, you, you think of football where you think of the 85 Bears with Buddy Ryan managing the defense and Mike Dickup managing the offense. It's kind of the same thing here. Salmaier really, like, the way he uses relievers, one thing about Sisku that was a very interesting set, during his first 30, 334 innings at the Mets, over five seasons and 208 appearances, he only allowed six home runs, Chris. I mean, again, yeah. keep in mind, too, that, you know, home runs were sort started peaking at 86, 87. That's when you started seeing the mysterious spike. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, related to whatever you want to believe it to be. So
0: Yeah. No, that's why I couldn't find batted ball data back then. I don't know if they have it, but I suspected that he was like a, a pretty hardcore sinker baller just by – just the, his low strikeout yes. numbers and the, the yeah, so no, you're right. You're that, right. Would, that would stand to reason.
1: Yeah, no, you are absolutely right because that's what Stottlemyer talked about: his singer being better than his. And so, I, I just want to give credit to Mel Stottlemyer because that's something that to able to, the the pull of the kind of innings you're getting on your bullpen at this time it's unheard of. If you think about what. In terms of Roger McDowell's season too, is the 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 number one right hander pitcher to go to. You have that with a lefty in uh, uh, Roscoe. That's a good combination. Even yeah. in, in Randy Newman too, same thing. But to have Rick Aguilera, uh, yeah, Rick Aguilera is who, yeah, who's I think he was the closer. He was I think for yeah, for the eighty seven Twins.
2: Yeah, was East? Yeah,
1: he was. No, I'm sorry, the ninety one Twins. Mm-hmm. In 87, he was still with the Mets, but um, he was used as a starter. But So for the offense, I wanted to – there's a couple things about – they led the NL in scoring in 1986. So if, you were talking about the pitching and how good it was, but – one thing I wanted to mention was is that their offense you know, led they led them the National League, but a couple of things kinda made that happen. And so Cashin really in terms of taking when he took over the team in eighty, he knew like he didn't have anything. I mean he didn't he even said it, it was just there's nothing you can get it was just terrible. So originally he kinda he started with some names like Dave Kingman and Ellis Valentine like acquired them early on in like in the nineteen eighty one. He also dealt with he also dealt for George Foster, but that didn't pay off. He was but Foster Believe it or not, was still on the 86 team. So his first trade that paid off, and you think about in terms of trades to kind of Browski before Nebrowski trade for Keith Fernandez in 1983, in June of 1983, with you know, Daryl Starberry came aboard a month earlier in eighty three. So you, you you start having the kind of the foundation set right there. And then how Davy Johnson came aboard in nineteen eighty four. And the reason why the familiarity with cashing was is that. Davey Johnson played for the Orioles, so he was a mm-hmm. second baseman with him. So he knew that he could have his guy and, and again, you talked about that trade earlier from Citizen from the Dodgers clutch. And that following off season eighty four, he also got and they, they were close. I mean they they were competing with the, the Cubs for a little bit before they would eventually lose out due to just some injuries, but they get Howard Johnson from the Tigers in exchange for Walt Terrell. So ironically that we'll bring that up in name again. Mm-hmm. And they get Gar- they also get Gary Carter, who also is a a, a guy this is again the the centerpiece for what is things to come gary carter is one of the nicest guys this guy goes in the end of going to hall the first expo to go in the hall of fame and he is the catalyst he's a guy that again among all those characters that were the mess he was the one that was the the square as square can be and considering that he had a a deal set in place with the expos before that was a seven-year deal for 14 million dollars they able to get that kind of bat back. Or kinda of bat for to get value for it. They were able to trade them. they were trade they traded Herbie Brooks, Mike Fitzgerald, Herm Willingham, and Floyd Youngemans for Carter. I don't know who the hell those guys are. I don't think do you know <laughs> you know any of those guys are? No. Okay. No.
0: Floyd Youngemans. <laughs> yeah.
1: Sounds, yeah. Like, <laughs> sounds like a stand with like a deli. Let's go to Youngemans yeah, and get Youngemans, a yeah. uh, get a
0: Mike Fitzgerald sounds vaguely familiar, but Yeah.
1: Maybe you know, maybe now that I think about it, maybe uh the, the name that comes to mind yeah. too is uh Herm Herb Willingham, I don't know why I remember that name, All but right. anywho. So that set the pace. I mean, in 85, they they lose, they win 90, 98 games. The reason I was mentioning this is because in terms of looking at their talent as a, as a whole for what they're able to develop internally offensively, they have these kind of bats. I guess they were looking at Howard Johnson for a while, too. But it's also, this is the, this is the era, Chris, where you have a defensive, they have some defensive players in mind, too. So mm-hmm. Rafael Santana. A, a guy who was a catalyst, kind of like kind of the glove first, second baseman, or infielder, rather. He, he, he played all over. But here he is just bat, you know He's in a lineup every – so, I mean, he's used for 139 games, batted 218. But, again, it was all about defense and platooning correctly. And another guy who compliments – I mean, in addition to George Foster being out there, being his age self right there, you have a couple young talents. So you got Lenny Dykstra and Nails, who is – one of the strangest characters in baseball, all of baseball history, which makes kind of fascinating. He was drafted in the 13th round, known for his hustle playing. And then you have Kevin Mitchell. This is the Kevin Mitchell that we don't see in San Francisco. This is the mm-hmm. skinnier version of Kevin Mitchell. And he is, the, you know, the guy who caught one hand in San Francisco. Like, I don't remember him as a Met, honestly. I don't remember him as a Met.
0: No, that's another one where I I kind of remember his baseball card. Uh, I remember it being like there's a lot of dust on it for some reason, like not on the card, but like it was like him sliding the home plate and there was dirt kicked up everywhere. But yeah, I remember seeing him on the Mets and like wait a minute, the guy who won the MVP with the Giants? I didn't remember. Yeah, he was just like their utility guy. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was like a really nice mix of like you said the veterans like Gary Carter, and Keith Hernandez, and George Foster, and then they had this this group of young guys coming up who were really talented and Dykstra and Strawberry and and uh, Mitchell.
1: Yeah, and they all went through Tiewater. I and mean, you're familiar with Water. We talked we've talked mm-hmm. about Tywater before. They were all, both and Mitchell was part of that team in 84, or excuse me, 85 rather. That was in water. And So, and then you get to kind of like Ray Knight. Ray Knight is this, another well-traveled veteran. He's a guy that provides kind of like the another veteran presence in the clubhouse, which he tried to do later on with the Tigers in 88, but whatever, that didn't really work out that way. But that's another bat. That's a guy who was part of the late part of the Cincinnati. I mean, he wasn't really part of the big red machine. At that point, by 77, the, the team was kind of broken up. So everybody talks about, like, I, originally I thought, like, oh, wow, Ray and I in the reds. But then you realize it was after the after that whole thing went down or after that whole mm-hmm. big red machine was broken up. But so Lenny Dykstra, part of the team probably drafted in. You got the, I mentioned Howard Johnson. And but again, it was just the way he was able to kind of platoon himself and, and Mookie Wilson, Mookie Wilson, who, as you ah, mentioned, yeah. yeah, there we go. And this is a guy who they were able to they got him and he was I mean, he was there from the beginning. He came there in 1980, originally uh, part of the I believe he was I believe he was drafted. I think he was drafted in there. He was drafted. Excuse me. He was drafted by the Mets. I mean, this is a guy who's been a Met for life. At that time, he was grew up when the, the team was bad. And so this is guy did see that all the work, all the work paid off. And in terms of even like for a, a kind of player that Mookie Mookie was, the thing is everybody talks about his that play and uh, his speed and this is a guy who at one point in time, Chris, took 603 at bats. He was out there all the time. And his best season in terms of war was his second best season of war was 1986 with a three three war, and you, you think about 85 and 80. Here's why I mentioned before why 84, 85 were also kind of wasted opportunities, at least in my opinion. They had the talent there to win. They could have, like, if there was a wild card, the Mets would have qualified. They won 98 games mm-hmm. in 85. They weren't going to get past that, but. And of course, Jim Scott. We mentioned earlier about the the possibility he had they were, they were saying that, uh, or Howard Johnson was, excuse me, David Johnson was saying that he was using a foreign substance on the ball. I don't remember if you remember that at all. Yeah. Wally Beckman, second base, he helped again. <laughs> this, is the guy, this is what the fourth time we mentioned him in the last month, but
0: it, well, yeah. I mean, you, looking at it, it's a lot like the offense. They didn't have Keith Hernandez. I think had the the best season by WAR at five and a half. So they didn't have any like crazy MVP level, but they had eight dudes who put up at least two WAR. Basically everybody who played every day, except for Rafael Santana, the shortstop, who I think you know, as Craig pointed out in his his piece about the Tigers and the, and the Rangers, and we talked about even with the the '68 Tigers, what teams used to allow or accept from shortstops offensively is just absurd. Yeah. These guys hitting like 215 with no home runs and they are just playing 160 games a year. It's like what in the world? But uh, that's how it used to be. But yeah, it's such a like a really just deep, talented, consistent. Lineup. That's how you win 108 games. If you, you got deep, consistent lineup and a deep, consistent rotation, you're in good shape.
1: Yeah. And another thing, too, like you guys you talk about literally even like the young guys who would come up later on for those late 80s, like Dave Madigan. They were like, just even Howard Johnson still like relatively young at this point. Some of these guys would become Mets regular for those. Some of them will become regular, some, some really bad Mets teams. But what captures this 86 Mets team in terms of an offensive standpoint, too, is the balance you talk about. Here we are with in terms of the, the war, what ha, what have you. But no guy hit over 24. The only one that did led the team in home runs was, was Daryl Strawberry with twenty seven. But Gary Carter was twenty four. I mean that's.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But you, I mean look at you look at his numbers. If You look at the numbers for Daryl Strawberry: twenty seven home runs, ninety three RBIs, and he struck out one hundred forty one times. That would have been, I mean, the kind of season it has now has been like, eh, kind of season these days. But Gary Carter, for, for a catcher at that time that had 24 home runs and 100, 105 RBIs, if you think about it, catchers weren't becoming the big, I mean, Lance, outside of Lance Parrish, I mean, Lance Parrish became kind of this the power-hitting catcher, Johnny Bench, and those beforehand, but it was really rare. But Gary Carter was continuing to be consistent about it. But that, to me, that always was the thing about his game too. Was in addition to being a great receiver, his offensive numbers. He was just in line with that kind of Gary Carter was the start of that prototypical or the new wave of catcher. Well, I don't want to say new wave because he was at that point he was in
0: his He's play every day, hit really well, play good defense. Like it's yeah, kind of a rare thing.
1: Yeah, he was. A, he was the second wave of that, I should say. Bench was the first mm-hmm. wave. I mean, Carter at that point was thirty-two. And, I mean, in terms of a catch, he actually caught, I think, caught longer than Johnny Bench because Johnny Bench wanted to be, he didn't want to catch all the time. Yeah, because he sort of started in 74, so just shortly after Johnny Bench because that was right around the time of Johnny Bench. Yeah,
0: I don't think he had, you know, Bench had crazy power. I don't know yeah. if Carter ever hit 40 home runs, but, but, yeah, it was that kind of, like, you know, elite offensive catcher that you just don't see much.
1: What's fascinating, by the way, about Keith Hernandez, never hit 20 home runs. Keith
0: Hernandez. Keith Hernandez. I despise Keith Hernandez. He asked me.
1: He, has um, to, he has me to move, or he has me to take him to the airport.
0: Just what a great, great second career for Keith Hernandez. There. Yeah. No. He was. He's one of the great underrated players of all time, too. I think. Uh, I'd be curious. He was a great defender at first base and a really good hitter. I wonder if he would uh, have embraced the fly ball revolution and been a uh, you know more of a home run hitter now, but. Yeah. And then we mentioned earlier, Daryl Strawberry. He wasn't fully formed at that point, but he was still super exciting, you know, 2020 guy every year and such a unique player, six foot six, super lanky. He was my favorite player for a reason. I loved First of all, I think you know, a good reason of it was just his name was Strawberry, and that appeals to a six or seven year old. But uh, also, I just I always loved speed and power guys, and he was one of the best uh, speed power guys in the '80s. Uh-huh. And it all fell apart in the '90s.
1: Oh yeah, with the the, the advent of drugs well, and all those other. He stra- was
0: basically he was basically at 40 WAR when he went to the Dodgers, and that's pretty much where he ended his career. Like 40 WAR, he was on a Hall of Fame track, and that was it. But see, what did Keith Hernandez? He ended up pretty close too. Yeah, 60 WAR, it's a pretty damn good career.
1: One thing about the I will say one thing about the Mets and I know or a, a friend of the show Abe in Southfield loves us loves the Mets. like a lot of people when you when you're a Mets fan you love the Mets I mean they've done so many little things and one of the guys on the Mets team that a lot of people loved at that period of time was Lee Mazzelli was just an utility player at that point, but he was a draft pick for the Mets in the seventies. He came back, and mm-hmm. he was a kid who grew up in Brooklyn. And so that that was a kind of one of those fascinating, fascinating things. He wasn't a stat guy. He wasn't a guy who was going to blow your mind at that point in his career because he's in his, he's like early. You know, he's thirty-two. I mean, but off the bench, he hits three hundred two. Yeah. Provides a solid bench bat, and that, that, and that was one thing about the Mets, about the CD six team, is the fact that you can platoon players in and out like that. To have a bench like that. That to me stands yeah. out, and that's what you, you're going to need to to win a World Series.
0: Yeah, he pulled. The, he pulled the old Ramon Ramon Santiago, where he gets traded away. They get Ron Darling and Walt Terrell, and then you know, they trade Walt Terrell for Howard Johnson, and then he comes back later. Yeah. Uh, you know, whereas Ramon Santiago, I think we will talk about the 2006 Tigers. Yes, next week. Yes. A, a little preview, yeah. You know, he, he Santiago gets traded away, and they get Carlos Guillen, and then a couple years later, Santiago's back. Yeah. You know, like you said, it was just it was there was a damn fine team build and. It was. It seemed like they they the sky was the limit for them, and, and just like you said, such a shame that uh, the drugs and the the party and the, and all that stuff. It all fell apart because, like I said, all five of their their pitchers were under 28, and we've talked about you know, the the core of that offense. I mean, they had a couple key veterans but even the the older veterans i think what carter and hernandez were like 32 at that point yep i think they still well i I think carter didn't really have any monster years after that but there was still some some quality there and strawberry was just coming to his own and so yeah it's it's just yeah what could have been yeah
1: and it was the same kind of thing with recently with the mets making the world series a few years ago the possibility of what if because but their pitching could stay healthy
0: Oh, their pitching yep yeah Yeah, you know there's an argument to be made that uh the, the curse of the Red Sox was transferred to the the Mets there in '86, although it clearly still plagued the Red Sox for another three decades, but uh, or two decades. But yeah, I mean that the Mets kind of now are just known as this team that doesn't seem to do anything right, or bad things keep happening um, them. Their players get attacked by feral pigs, and <laughs> their <laughs> owner gets caught up in a Bernie Madoff scheme. and it's just like what in the hell is going on? But uh, I think you like you said it. Like there's, you're a Mets fan, you're you're a damn Mets fan, yeah, and uh, good on them.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's the same kind of scenario sometimes with Tiger fans where the the Tigers could do no wrong, and that's fine. I mean, that's why you're listening to the Tigers podcast. But uh, thank you so much for listening, by the way. We're out of time. This is our longest show we've had in quite a long time. And again, our thanks to uh, Craig. Calcaterra for joining us from NBC Sports and Hardball Talk. Great blog if you're looking for content right now. And check out all our great content over at Tiger Me Report. Joe is woken from his slumber. He's been able to write a little bit. So And I am working on a piece. I'm working on a couple pieces from the State Bengals right now. Dan Hasey's going to be having a piece coming out here uh, for the next couple of days, so I'm looking forward to that. We're doing some draft coverage. I'm actually – we're talking to a Tiger – fingers crossed there's a Tiger minor player I'm going to be profiling a little bit and discussing, and Chris and I got to see him last year, and hopefully some news of this whole curve, flatten the curve. Be careful, everybody. Honestly, I didn't take – not that I didn't take it seriously before, but just honestly be careful and make sure that you are – uh, just being a sane yeah. person.
0: There we go. Okay. Stay home if you can't. Keep your distance. Wash your hands. Yeah. Yeah. All that good stuff. And uh, it's, it feels like, I mean, there's, there's a long way to go, but we're already, what, five weeks, six weeks into this? It It's, uh, we'll get through it. It's just a new normal, and you get used to it. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, at one point, people could smoke in bars. Now you can't. You got used to it really quickly. <laughs> Unless you're a smoker. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you, you know what? If, after this, there's gonna be a lot of a lot of changes in how things go forward with just everyday society stuff. But until then, stay safe. We'll see you next time cuenta cuanta